There is a story of the great collector of art. He's actually a billionaire uh, publishing mogul of the, of the 20th century named William Randolph Hearst. Some of you may have visited his castle out in San Simeon, California. It has one of the most incredible art collections you'll, you'll ever see. Um, there's a story that one time he was looking through a, an art catalog and he came across a series of classic works and they just so stirred his heart that he, he had to have them. And he called in those on his art staff, you know, those that were responsible for collecting and maintaining and cataloging and all those things. And, and he called them in and he said, listen, I need these. We must add these works to our collection. I don't care who owns them, what it costs, please go find them and bring them into our collection so that they can be displayed here. So that team went off. This is before the Internet or anything. Of course, it took a lot of research and a lot of work, and they came back a couple months later, and they said, Sir, we're sorry to disappoint you, but we cannot locate those works anywhere. It's as if they've disappeared off the face of the earth. And he says, that's not an acceptable answer. You must find them. I don't care what the cost is. Go out there and get them and bring them to us so that we could display them here. And a couple more weeks goes by, and they came back in, and they said, Sir, we found them. He says, Really? Where were they? Who has them? Sir, they were in your warehouse. You own them. They've been yours all along. We're about to open a warehouse of incredible truth, an unshakable identity that that is provided for us through the work of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We, this is ours. It's been bought with us for a price. It's been finished. It's been presented to us. It's ours to own. But so many of us walk through life, live our life, are struggling through life, not realizing that this treasure is ours. And Paul is here to present it to us. We're going to spend two weeks in this first chapter alone. We'll go through the first 15 or 14 verses today, and that will be more than enough to try to accomplish here this morning. The book of Ephesians, like most of Apostle Paul's letters to the first century church, can be divided roughly in half. There is a part one which is focused on doctrinal truth, what, what we need to know. It establishes our place in Christ as followers of his. And then there's the second half, the practical application. Having known that knowledge, having understood your position, then how do you live your life out in his church on this earth? Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus is the same. But I'm going to give you, I'm going to divide it a little bit more than that. There's, there's this doctrinal section, which we're going to title the word sit. Matter of fact, right there in your Bible, I want you to be note takers in your Bible right there at the beginning, right below the title of Ephesians. Write these three words, sit, walk, and stand. Sit, walk, and stand. And this provides a a great outline for us for the study of Ephesians. It's not my outline. It comes right from the book, but it was first, I think, penned by the Chinese church planter and evangelist and preacher by the name of Ni Tao Sang. Now, we know... We know him as Watchman Nee. And he wrote a study on the book of Ephesians by that title, Sit, Walk, and Stand. And it provides us with a great overall outline of how this book's put together. First of all, we need to sit. And that's what we're going to do this morning. 
We're going to sit in awe. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6 says, And He made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That's the position that Paul has as he's writing this. We'll talk about that more. Later on in Ephesians chapter 4, it says that we should walk worthy. Now that we know our position in Christ and we've taken in and been reminded of this great treasure that's been provided for us, now we walk in that worthy of the calling for which we were called. In other words, that treasure was all not for just... There's a purpose there. We need to walk in that. And then many of you are familiar with Ephesians chapter 6, that great chapter about standing against the wiles of the devil, standing against the enemy. And there's our outline for Ephesians. We're going to, for the first couple of weeks here, look at this doctrinal idea, our position in Christ. We're going to sit and we're going to drink in and we're going to observe this incredible treasure, this unshakable identity that's provided for us. Then we'll learn to walk And then lastly, because of what Christ is doing in and through us, there will be the need to stand against the enemy. So for these first several weeks, we're going to study our position of sitting. This image of sitting, this image of the seated Savior. See, we're, we're not just sitting, we're actually sitting next to Christ, who sits in heaven at the right hand of God the Father. And this image of him sitting is a very important and powerful image that we need to try to wrap our imagination around because it has great significance in why he's sitting and why we get to sit next to him. Through the book of Hebrews, there are some key images here because the book of Hebrews is really identifying Christ as our high heavenly priest. Written to the Jewish church, it's comparing Christ and his work as a priest to the earthly priest. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says this, referring to Jesus, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, listen to this, when he purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty. An amazing image. Hebrews contrasts that image of the high priest to those of the earthly priests. And it says this in chapter 10. Every priest, speaking of earthly priests, stand ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins, the scripture says. But... This man, capital M, referring to Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice forever, sat down at the right hand of God. On the cross, Jesus said what? It is finished. That's good news. It is finished. And he sat down. This idea of sitting and resting... This finished work of Christ, this is one that doesn't come easy to most of us as human beings. Most of us have in our mind that we need to do something. We need to walk first. If we don't walk, then how will we ever reach our goals? What can we attain without effort? How can we ever get anywhere if we don't move? But Christianity is different. 
It doesn't begin with a big do, D-O. It begins with a big done, D-O-N-E. You see, sitting is a position of rest, something the work has been finished. How many times have you ever come into a guest house after a long day's work or come into a house as a guest and they say, hey, sit down, take a load off, (laughs) relax. But it's contrary to the logic of most of us in the way that we think we need to advance in Christ. But it's contrary to logic. In order to move on as a Christian, in order to grow in our relationship, we need to first learn to sit. This was a principle from the very beginning for God to model for us. Let's go back to the very first days of creation. Think about Adam, the firstborn of creation. Genesis tells us that he was born on what day of creation? What day was Adam born? Anybody? The sixth day. Thank you. I couldn't hear you. The sixth day. So if Adam was born on the sixth day, that's correct. If he was born on the sixth day, then the first full day of Adam's life was what? The seventh day, which we call what? The Sabbath, a day of rest. Hmm. How about that? What a deal. Adam is born, gets up, shakes out the kink, says, hey, what do we got in store for today, God? God says, well, I've been at work all week long, Adam. Look around what I have created. You know what we're going to do today? Have a seat. Rest. You see, from the very beginning, God works first before he rests. While man must enter in to that rest before he can work. It's an incredible image. It's because of God's creation was complete that Adam's life could begin with a day of rest. And this is one of the first brush strokes of the gospel message. The idea that the work of redemption through his son Jesus Christ is completed. And that we, when we recognize it, when we hear it, when we understand it, when we believe it, We enter directly into that rest. Paul's one of the great doers of the New Testament. Amazing what he's accomplished in his missionary journeys. Now writing a letter back to that church that he planted back in Acts 19, Acts 20. You can read about that, the the church in Ephesus there. Paul was a doer though. And maybe it's no coincidence that it would be from a Roman prison where Paul was forced To sit. God looking at this great doer saying, you just still don't get it, do you, Paul? I tell you what, I'm going to sit you down in Rome. And you're going to get it. And it's from that prison that Paul writes this perspective. By the way, Watchman Nee, who wrote that great study on, on Ephesus, he would spend the last... 20 years of his life in a communist Chinese labor camp where he would die in 1972. So Paul sitting here reflecting on this position of seated next to the Savior 
And he's opened up this storehouse of treasure and he drafts a letter to the church in Ephesus, addressing it to the saints, the set-apart ones, the sanctified ones. We need to remember that we are set apart. You're a saint. doesn't have to go to any committee. You don't have to verify miracles. It, you, know, you don't have to have a devil's advocate there to tell you how messed up you were. We, we know all that about ourselves. God doesn't address us as saints because of what we've done. What we've done, He addresses us as saints because of what He's done in us and through us. When He sees you and He sees me, He sees Christ and He says, "Saint, you're sitting next to a saint this morning. Look around. You can go home, tell your neighbors, hey, I was in church. There was a saint sitting next to me.'" And Paul begins to write to these saints in Ephesus. He begins with this statement in verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing. And then he goes on and he's going to unpack these blessings for us. Paul erupts here into just one just eruption of praise. It's almost as if... He's having difficulty containing himself. As a matter of fact, in the Greek language that he wrote this in, that this was first recorded, it's one continuous run-on sentence for the next 14 verses. Some 120 words in the Greek. It's the longest sentence in all of the New Testament, in the original language. He just can't contain himself. What are those blessings? And in the midst of them is this great image of the of the Trinity, blessings that come from the Father, God the Father, blessings that come from God the Son, blessings that come from God the Spirit. Let's read them together. Starting at verse 3 again, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He would say that some 27, in Christ Jesus, or in Christ, some 27 times in this letter. Listen, as you're going through this, I encourage you, circle the word He. Circle the word Him. Circle the word His. It's all about Him in this. It all comes from Him. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the good pleasure of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. In Him, verse 7, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of fullness of times, He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth, in Him. Verse 11, in Him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. Verse 13, in Him also you trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom 
Also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. And then Paul takes a breath. (gasps) He can't contain himself. What are these truths? Let, let's, let's break these down just so we, if you're a note taker, look at what God the Father does for us. We'll look at each of these packaged up. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. First of all, God the Father. Verse 4, He has chosen us. Now we're going to come back and we're going to spend more time talking about that this morning than any of these others because we need to try to understand that a little bit. This idea of election, of predestination. This passage speaks of that perhaps more strongly than any other. And we need to try to process through that. He has adopted us. Verse 5. This is, a, this is a beautiful image, this idea of adoption, right? And we often think of adoption of, of smaller children, younger children, infants perhaps. This idea of adoption was, was more of a Jewish mindset. It had to do with, with an adult who had lost... Their heir, their, 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 um, their, their parent, they were orphaned and they, they have no inheritance now. So they would move over into a family, a relative, a loved one perhaps, who would adopt them in and make them an heir. Where they had no inheritance, now they have an inheritance. This image, by the way, is the prodigal son, and it's mind-boggling to think about. Remember, the prodigal son, he goes to his father, he says, Father, give me all that I have coming to me now. And the father does. And he goes out and he blows it. And then he comes back home. The father waiting, eagerly watching, will he ever come home? He comes home. Now he's already had his inheritance and he's blown his inheritance. He comes back home and his father adopts him again. Brings him in. Puts a robe on him and puts what on his finger? A ring. That's a signet ring. It would be a signet ring that would enable him to speak on his father's estate, on behalf of his father's estate. He made him an heir. Once again, it's mind-boggling. Paul says, God's done that for you. He's accepted us in, again, why? Verse 6, because of the beloved. You're accepted not because you're special, but because Jesus Christ is special. Because of the work that he's done, you're accepted in, adopted, chosen. God the Son, verse 7. God the Son has redeemed us. This idea of the purchasing out of slavery, out of bondage. Paying the price, the incredible price to purchase our freedom from the bondage and slavery of sin. Through that price, forgiven us. Verse 7. Revealed His will to us. We're going to look at this more in the weeks ahead, especially next week. But there's this idea of God's will being given to us for a purpose. A dispensation. He's given you knowledge through His Spirit that no one else has. Those that don't know Him, they don't have that knowledge. You and I have access to it. His Word comes alive to you. He speaks through it. And He has... Given us, verse 11 and 12, an inheritance again. Literally even, not only given us an inheritance, but he has made us an inheritance. And then lastly, what has God the Spirit done for us? 
What is God the Spirit doing for us? And we'll look at these as before we close. He has sealed us. We'll come back to that. And He has guaranteed us. We'll come back to that and close with that in a little bit. But I want to look back here at this work of the Spirit, uh, I'm sorry, of God the Father in verse 4, where it says that He has chosen us. Look at this verse. Just as He chose us in Him, when? Before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love, having predestined us to adoption. Mind-boggling. This passage, perhaps more than any other passage in, in Scripture, provides this clear doctrine of what the Bible, what, what theologians call election, predestination. And this is, this is a doctrine that can, that can confuse us and confound us. But it's something that we need to spend a little bit of time talking about this morning. One of my favorite Bible teachers is Warren Wearsby. Whenever I'm trying to understand a text, he's one of the first resources I'll reach for. And Warren Wearsby says of election, he says, try to explain election and you'll lose your mind. Try to explain it away and you'll lose your soul. Well, hopefully we won't do either of those this morning. But this concept of election, this is in constant tension with the concept of man's free will. They remain in tension and always present before us if you're a Bible reader because the Bible speaks clearly of both of them. Look, for example, right here in this same passage, look at verse 13. We just read about God's choosing us before the foundation of the earth, predestining us. And then verse 13 says, in him, you also what? Trusted. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. So there's this idea of being selected, this idea of being predestined, and then there's this idea of responding and trusting to that. What's going on? Well, there are frequent commands to the unsaved to respond to God's calling of grace. From the old all the way through the end. In Joshua, you remember that that classic verse. Some of you might have it in your homes. I don't know about you, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. But Joshua says, choose today for yourself. Choose for yourself who you're going to serve. We move into, and through the Old Testament, there's several examples of that. Move into the New Testament real quick, and the precursor, the, the one who would pave the way for Jesus, John the Baptist, baptizing those that were eagerly seeking to find God and follow Him. John's crying out in the wilderness and saying, listen, repent, repent, repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent's a decision. Stop doing what you're doing. Stop living in sin. Live in obedience. Repent. Jesus would come along in that same gospel and he would call out and he would say, come to me all who labor and who are heavy laden. Come to me, come, and I will give you rest. And then all the way to the end of the story that we have revealed to us, in Revelation, again, it says, whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Come. Come. 
Yet at the same time, the Bible's just as clear that no one receives Jesus Christ as Savior who has not been chosen. We read the scripture this morning. Romans 8.29 says that for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. 1 Thessalonians 1, verses 3 and 4 says, Remember without ceasing your work of faith, your labor of love, and patience and hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the sight of our God and Father, knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God. Peter writes to the church, chapter 1, verse 2, To the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of blood of Jesus Christ. And then for me, one verse that gives me great peace in in just kind of resting in this fact that there's going to be this tension, we're not going to be able to explain this all with our mortal minds, but Jesus himself in John chapter 6, verse 37 He said, all the Father gives me. That's an election phrase. The Father giving to Christ. Jesus says, they shall come to me. And the one who comes to me, he says, that's that free will. Those that come, I will certainly not cast out. There's tension in that verse. It's difficult for me anyway to process that. See, God's sovereign election and man's exercise of responsibility in choosing Jesus Christ, they seem opposite at times. They seem in irreconcilable truths. From our limited perspective, they are. And listen, most of us don't like this tension. We don't like to have to explain this to unbelievers that are seeking. Well, what, isn't that a con, isn't that contrary? We don't like it, so what do we do? And this is the danger. We tend to want to take the mystery out of the Bible. We want to take out the paradox and we want to streamline it and change it to fit our systems of order and consistency. And it's not always that easy. Matter of fact, that's a very dangerous approach. And then we become very dogmatic and we start to cause these schisms that can separate us into camps and groups. First of all, it's unfaithful to God's word and it uses, it it, it leads to confusion and it leads to weakened living. And listen, this is just one of the paradoxes. One of the mystical aspects that's difficult for us to wrap our brains around. Listen, skeptics use these apparent contradictions as bullets. They load them in their gun and they fire them as a, at us as Christians. And it can cause doubt. It can cause frustration. But can I just push back from that for a minute? This can be an encouragement. It, this encourages me. These mysteries, these difficulties, they encourage me. These incomprehensible truths remind me that the mind of God is infinitely more superior to my mortal mind. They serve as a great proof that a divine, supernatural, out-of-this-world author did in fact write this Bible. Because if the Bible was written by mere humans... 
on their own without divine influence, they would have resolved these issues. There's some brilliant writer. They could have, they could have streamlined all this out and made it all line up nice and orderly and all of this contradiction would be removed. You see, God's sovereign election or predestination and the contrary, the human response, they're, they're inseparable parts of salvation. Though exactly how they operate together, only the infinite mind of God knows. Now I'm going to give you a very simple, mortal attempt to just open your eyes a little bit and, and get you thinking. Right? So here's a very corny prop. Now you can this this is meant to be an overblown Dixie cup, right? Like you get out of a drink fountain. Or a snow cone, but this morning you might not want it a snow cone. It was a little cold. So that's what it is. We just blew it up so that you could see it. But if I fold this cup together and I hold it at a distance, or if I were to take a photograph of it and show it to you, what's the shape of that? It's a triangle. And in that one dimension, that's exactly what it is, is a triangle. But at the same time, in another dimension, if I look at it from a different view, and if I look at it dead on like that, from a different plane, again, what what is that? A circle, right? It has the shape of a circle. Now, it's still a triangle, but in one plane it can be a circle. And then if I add another dimension to it, it clearly becomes a cone. Now, again, this is a weak attempt. It's just a simple illustration. But the fact is, is that we need to realize that the author of this book doesn't live in our restrictions of dimensions. He is the author and finisher. He is the alpha and the omega. He chose you from the beginning. Before the foundations of the earth were laid, he chose you. One guy said, yeah, he had to choose me way, way back then because if he would have got to know me, he would have never chose me. Amen. It's true for every single one of us. But he's chosen you. He's chosen you. A lot of people don't like this idea of election. I want to remind you that as you read through the Bible, you'll never see anyone elected to hell. We're all elected into salvation. You're all elected into the riches that we read about this morning. And if you're sitting there this morning and say, well, I don't know if I believe that, and I don't know if I've ever been elected, then get up after the service is over and come down and be elected. It's the only way I can explain it. There is a calling of God because every single testimony I've ever heard in my own testimony is that God drew me. I was, I was a mess and God saved me. He took effort and reached down and changed my life when I was a sinner. It had nothing at all to do to me. That's a drawing. That's an election. That's a chosen. If he's calling you this morning, then be elect. Come down. Repent. Ask Christ to be your Lord and Savior. It's that simple, and it's that complex. 
As we close this morning, I want to go and look at these last two verses that we read here, verses 13 and 14. Because if there is this calling, if there is this election, if there is this choosing, from the beginning of the foundation, He knew you, He knew this day, He knew your heart, He knew your struggles. And He made known the fact that you're here this morning is maybe a sign of this election. And it says in verse 13, In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation. And as the worship team comes up this morning, I want to look at what that Holy Spirit does. And I want this to encourage you today. Whether you make a decision this morning for Christ or you've been walking with Christ for 20, 30, 40 years, some of you perhaps. I want you to be reminded of the sealing of the Holy Spirit. That response to the gospel is sealed by the Holy Spirit. God sent a gift to you. The very first thing he, he told the, the New Testament church is the, the, the resurrected Christ, when he assembled his apostles and he said, listen, I want you to go to Jerusalem into the upper room and wait, sit, in other words, sit, and wait for the coming of my Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit comes, he seals salvation for you. I had a couple come up to me this morning, Mark and Kristen Tabor. If you know them, you know that they had a, they, they just adopted, um, a young girl by the name of Addison from Africa. And before Addison could come home, she died in the orphanage. And we had a service for her just a couple weeks ago and, and gave testimony and celebrated her life, a, a member of Calvary Chapel of Delaware County. You know what made her a member? Her adoption paperwork, they had gone to Africa, they had got the paperwork all done, and the paperwork came in. You know why? It was sealed. They sealed it. They put an official seal on it and said, Addison is now Addison Tabor. She became a child of Mark and Kristen Tabor. And although she never got to come home, we buried her, celebrated her life as a member of this church because she was sealed. The Holy Spirit has sealed the work that Christ has done. He owns us, he protects us, and he's given us an earnest, a guarantee, a promise that he's going to come again to claim us. Would you stand and worship? Can we celebrate the work that Christ has done? If you want to receive Christ this morning after this song, come down front. There will be people to pray with you a prayer of salvation that you might enter in. Because God has chosen you.